So we're going to be doing a lesson on the glory of Jesus' suffering, which is a really intimidating subject to do in one lesson. Um, but I'm just going to try to point, some, point to some things uh, that hopefully can urge just a, a greater comprehension of the significance of wh- what Jesus did, what he endured, and what that means for us. Uh, we talked last week about the wandering in the wilderness, and I think one of, the, one of the things that can be easy to miss in the ministry of Jesus, I mean, so many things, is like it happened that way, you read it happening, you read the narrative, and it goes along, and um, I think oftentimes it's helpful to think behind the scenes a little bit about some of the things that Jesus did. And so I think one of the, the things that can be hard to grasp about Jesus' ministry is he ultimately never left the wilderness, that the suffering that he endured there was preparing him for a ministry that would involve emptying himself completely every day, Uh, going without, going without food and shelter, going without understanding or proper companionship. I think even Jesus' disciples, as much of a joy as they would have been for him to invest in, um, I think there's many ways where they weren't able to be the kind of companion that he ultimately would have needed that only, only God the Father could be that companion for him, which is, I think, why he would oftentimes seclude himself to pray. Um, so Jesus never left the wilderness. Um, the, the, the suffering of that 40 days, I think, is, is just a testimony of what would continue to increase in terms of suffering in his life. Um, and I think the suffering of the cross is just the culmination of all of that. So I want want to bring up a passage in Isaiah 52 to start the lesson. We'll come back to some things in Isaiah. Um, But I just, I want to portray that I think it's hard to imagine the degree to which Jesus suffered in every way. I mean, it's, it's difficult to really appreciate the emotional suffering of the cross, the spiritual suffering, the physical suffering, uh, there's, there's a film, The Passion of the Christ, which many of us may have seen. I've seen that movie. Uh, this may sound weird, maybe almost um, sick. <laughs> uh, but I think even that movie, as brutal as the portrayal was of Jesus' suffering, I think it, it in my opinion, it still would not have come close to the reality. I, I think, based on what Isaiah 52 says, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond any human likeness, I think the idea is that Jesus suffered more than we can imagine. That if we were actually to see what Jesus looked like at the end of his life, nobody would see what they would expect. That you would see a man so brutalized, so torn apart, so disfigured, he wouldn't even look like a man anymore. And so I think, again, that that isn't just something physically, but that points to how hard it can be to grasp how much he had truly emptied himself. Um... And we talked about last week, Jesus, his advantages were not to exempt him from human affliction, but to encourage a greater capacity to endure human affliction. Throughout the Old Testament, righteous people like David, Jeremiah, mentioned in the lesson this morning, their righteousness did not exempt them from suffering. It made it so that they could actually dig deeper into suffering. And I think the same with Jesus. When we think about Jesus enduring the cross, it's not that him being the son of God made him robotically capable to endure the suffering because, well, that's what he was sent into the world for. It's what 
he knew he would need to endure. I, again, I just I want us to appreciate that Jesus's privileges as God's son, his righteousness, his love for people, all of these things would make it so that he could endure a greater suffering, a deeper suffering, and that his righteousness would help him go further than what any normal person had the capacity to endure. I think what Isaiah 52 helps us to appreciate as well is that God, through history, was working through the ages and years to culminate circumstances that would cost the most. And so I think when we think about the suffering of Jesus, we should also be thinking about the suffering of the Father. I'll bring this up at the end of the lesson. Remember John 3.16, for God, God the Father so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so I think, again, when we're thinking about Jesus' suffering, it's not just Jesus himself, it's, it's the Father as well, and that God was culminating a circumstance that would push his love, his capacity, in all its seemingly infinite measure to the furthest possible limits so that we could know his love to the furthest possible limit, right? And so why did it take so long to send Jesus into the world? Love. Because the cost of what Jesus would be to God spending Jesus as God's greatest resource for our sakes, it required thousands of years of investment and time and patience for Jesus to be the kind of person he would be, for Jerusalem to be what it would be, for us to know God's character and love and long-suffering. All of this culminated in the suffering of Jesus. And so let's look at Luke 22, 39 through 46. What I have on the board here is from Mark, actually. I'm going to try to Mix in a little bit of Mark to just point out a couple things that I think are helpful along the way. But just what's not said in Luke is that Jesus was very distressed and troubled, even telling his disciples that his soul was deeply grieved in the garden, even to the point of death. And he called them to stand and keep watch. Let's read Luke 22, 39 through 46. And he came out and proceeded, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples also followed him. When he arrived at the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and began to pray, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. Um, I like the ESV and pretty much every other translation says, being in agony, he prayed more fervently. So it's like it's a response to his agony that he was more fervent in prayer. And his sweat became like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. When he arose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow and said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter temptation. So Jesus's grief here, I think, can be difficult to understand. And I want to think, why is Jesus so grieved in the Garden of Gethsemane? Again, he's been anticipating the cross his whole life. He's been very open with his disciples that he's very aware that that's going to be the conclusion of his ministry. So this, it's not like this is some surprise to Jesus. So although I'm quite sure the physical suffering was a part of it, right? Jesus was obviously very close to you know, being brutalized and tortured very slowly, very painfully, um, in extremely excruciating ways. But I, I want to suggest to you that that may not have been 
what was most grievous to Jesus. Um, I think love was what was most difficult for Jesus. The love that's created in the love of God in relationships creates excruciating burdens, excruciating difficulties and anxieties when you're considering people, investing in people, sacrificing for people. Remember 1 John 4, God is love. Love creates the heaviest burdens, the most difficult anxieties. It's love that creates those things. And, and I think the reason it can be so hard for us to grasp this, um, when I was younger, so when I was about nine years old, my parents went through bankruptcy. And the reason for bankruptcy was a lot of very emotionally taxing things. Um, and so my parents at that time were pushed emotionally to a point when I was nine, all I could see is that they were sad or they were frustrated and we're having to move. We moved from Florida to Minnesota because of our bankruptcy. And uh, when they would tell me about this, my dad, I remember one point in particular, he was standing very, very solemnly in the kitchen with his head down, his hands gripping the countertop. And I came up to him and he said, I can't remember what he said exactly, but he said something like, Bryant, we're going to have to move to Minnesota. And I think he was expecting me to be like really sad about it, but I was like, oh, okay, that's nice. You know, so I thought, you know, moving is just a bit of fun. You know, we're changing location. And I think my dad was surprised, you know, that I wasn't, I wasn't hit more by it. But I think the, the thing was, is I was so young, I had, I had no ability to really grasp such deep and intense emotions or circumstances that involved burdens that really they were bearing the brunts of those burdens, right? And so I think because God is love and his love is, is to such a degree that we just, we struggle to understand. We don't love people like God does. We don't think about God the way God thinks about us. And because of this, I think it may be fair to say that on an emotional level, we are very calloused compared to God. Jesus was not calloused in that way. And so when we look at his grief, it can be difficult to appreciate simply because we don't love like Jesus loved. And I think because of that, the more that we learn to love, the more that we grow in God's love, the more that we love others the way that God has loved us, the more we can appreciate his suffering. Uh, there is surprisingly little said about his crucifixion. You know, when you read the end of Luke, in Luke 23, 33 through 49, encompasses his entire crucifixion. It's a very short section. Luke is a very big book of the Bible. You know, and you could think, well, Luke is a physician, so, you know, maybe he's interested in, like, and the nails were driven in between his veins and these injuries happened. Luke doesn't mention his scourging. Like, not at all. He doesn't even mention that Jesus was scourged. And the nails, and all, he doesn't mention that. He just says, and he was crucified. Summary statement. And he focuses on other things. So, the crucifixion actually is a very, very small point of emphasis. So how do we appreciate the enormity of what that represented? Love. When we know God's love, when we learn to love as he loves, whether that be through the Old Testament, whether that be applying instructions in the epistles, whether it be appreciating the love that the church in the epistles had for one another, the love that Jesus had for his disciples, when we know God's love, we are equipped to take a step further in appreciating what we remember every week during the Lord's Supper. Love that is difficult to grasp. And so I want to mention two things that I think aren't thought about very often. Um, I think obviously 
there's something very tangibly understandable about the physical suffering. And I, I don't want to downplay that as we go through this, but I want that to be the platform to think more highly about these concerns that I believe would have been greater. Number one, Jesus' love and concern for God the Father. In the Old Testament and the prophets, you don't get the idea that God is an emotionless being in response to his people. God continuously conveys that he's crushed by Israel's iniquities, that he's heartbroken, that it's like a husband who's been betrayed in the worst senses in his wife, and he's invested in her, he's loved her, and in repayment, she's become just an adulteress against him. And and God is deeply heartbroken on behalf of his people. Prophets like Jeremiah, who is known as a weeping prophet, convey God's emotions in ways that are much more approachable when we see it in the form of a person. Because God is love, God feels things. God has emotions. As surprising as that may sound, that God in heaven feels emotions on our behalf. And I want to illustrate it this way. Being married, there's a lot of new emotions that come because of marriage and because of the love in marriage. And there are times when I'm traveling, I'm driving, and Eva's at home, and it'll just cross my mind. What if I got in a car accident and was killed? And Eva has no idea and then finds out because of getting a call secondhand what had happened to me. And it melts my heart thinking about how devastated she would be. God was devastated, the father, when he had to punish Israel, which was fair, which was just. And the prophets consistently convey that it devastated God to have to destroy his people and punish them. How much more? Jesus, knowing what the father himself was about to bear, unfairly allowing his son to be tortured and mocked and humiliated by peasants, peons, ants, who deserve wrath and punishment. Jesus, knowing what this would instigate in God's wrath, Jesus knew God like nobody else. And I think what we don't think about often enough when we're considering sin, we don't consider how grieved it makes God for us to be in a condition separated from him. It's not just Jesus, it's what it will instigate in the Father for people to treat Jesus the way he will be treated in a time frame of the gospel, the wrath of God that is now much more fully justified in the world because of how Jesus was treated. I think we don't think enough about how much Jesus loved the Father and how concerned he was for the impact this would have on the Father to do these things to his own son. And I think Jesus' love for his disciples is very difficult to grasp. Why is it as Jesus is on the brink of being crucified, what he has been expecting and anticipating and working towards, why all of a sudden is he praying any other way? Because love grows over time. What are the disciples going to do when Jesus is arrested? They're all going to abandon him and flee. What's going to happen to Judas because of Jesus? You know, it's, it's because of Judas, but in a sense, because of what must happen to Jesus, because of what must happen to fulfill the scriptures, Judas is gone. He's long gone. There's something inserted in Luke that is not in any other gospel in verse 61. 
I used to think about this as something that would be convicting for Peter. Verse 61, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And this is something I'm implying. So this is an opinion. I want you to understand that. But I think they made eye contact in that moment. I think when the rooster crowed and Peter understood what just happened and he knew where Jesus was, he was there to watch it all happen, Jesus and Peter have a moment. And I picture this in slow motion. And Peter leaves to weep bitterly. And I've thought about how that would impact Peter, to have that moment with Jesus and then leave and weep. But how much would that affect Jesus, who'd been praying for Peter, who'd been investing in Peter, to watch a disciple whom he loved so deeply be tempted, be taken advantage of, and to see Satan gain that victory over Peter. To see someone you love fail so catastrophically And mind you, he denied Jesus. This was something done against Jesus. Think about the empathy of Jesus, the compassion of Jesus, and how this would only intensify his grief. I think what Satan had done, just like I mentioned in in the temptations in the wilderness, Satan had studied Jesus. In the temptations in the wilderness, Satan had been studying his upbringing, his decisions, his life, his teenage years, his 20s. And Satan put together in those temptations in the wilderness what would be the most cunning and subtle things that could push Jesus. And I think Jesus was being studied by Satan through his ministry as well. And what Satan had so cleverly observed is that Jesus' life revolved around people. And that became the weapon, the tool that Satan was using to tempt Jesus to despair while being crucified and put on trial. The more we know love, the more we know what it was that was so difficult to bear in Jesus's uh, trial and crucifixion. And I want us to appreciate this, that his anxiety became so extreme (coughs) in his prayer, not my will, but yours be done. You know, praying in Mark, Jesus says, Father, with you, all things are possible. So he acknowledges if there's any other way, God will make it. God will make some other way. Verse 43, an angel from heaven appears to him, strengthening him. The only other time that happens is in Matthew 3 and with the wilderness temptations in Luke chapter 3 as well. After he was finished with being tempted by the devil for 40 days, angels came and ministered to him. This is the only other time we see that happening. And I want you to think, Jesus, when he said he was deeply grieved to the point of death, I think we should take that seriously. I've seen people in the pits of despair I've seen grief that was extremely uncomfortable um, to be around. But I've never seen someone grieved so deeply that I thought they were literally going to die because of their grief. What Jesus says before his grief is he's literally on the point of death because of how deep his grief is. An angel appears to him. And so again, I think the idea is this is an emergency situation where God has to miraculously step in. And verse... uh, Verse 44 and 45, this didn't relieve his suffering. Notice it says when the angel appeared strengthening him, he prayed more fervently in anguish. I think the idea is the angel is trying to encourage him that God will provide what you need. This is God's way. This is the way it has to be. And Jesus embracing that reality in anguish prays even more fervently and his sweat becomes like drops of blood falling down upon the ground. Again, I have a hard time grasping this degree of anxiety, and I'm not sure if that his, 
you know, blood vessels were literally mixing with his sweat glands and that he was sweating blood really on the ground or if it's an illustration sweating like drops of blood just meaning how profuse the sweating was. But I think the idea is Jesus was aware that God was truly putting him at risk. Who was Jesus to God? His only begotten son. But it's through Jesus everything was created. Everything is sustained in existence by Jesus. He is the reason for everything. He is what everything exists because of. And whatever this is, what's happening with Jesus at least signals to me that God was risking everything in the cross. That whatever that means, in some genuine and true sense, Jesus was acknowledging he is genuinely being put at risk. Everything's being put on the line. Jesus is being put to the limit. And I think at the same time, God puts the limit as well in the way he's sacrificing his son. Think about Jesus' trials. After Jesus' arrest and his betrayal by Judas, he stands trial through the night. So this would be through uh, midnight, the early hours of the morning. He's before the Jewish leaders first. He's first sent to Annas, the previous high priest that's only really talked about in John's gospel. And then Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders afterwards. That's where uh, Luke 22, 66 through 71 takes place. And then Pilate and Herod get time with Jesus as well. But I think something that, again, can be difficult to appreciate is that, again, love being the greatest grief Jesus would experience through this process. Everything happening in each phase of Jesus' trial is inviting more people into his suffering. It starts with being betrayed by Judas, one of his closest friends that he had invested everything into. Imagine how much he had prayed for Judas and prayed for Peter. But now people that, again, it can be difficult to remember, although these are his enemies, Jesus had invested in these Jewish leaders. He would have known them by name. He would have blessed them when they were cursing him already in the past. He would have known how they were going to treat them and he would have already been praying for them, for their good. And so every step is intensifying the suffering as more people that Jesus loves are brought into the suffering and brought into it into a way where they would only intensify the suffering as he's slandered, abused, falsely accused and condemned and when people he loves stand aloof in the process. And Jesus demonstrates things about God through this trial. You remember John 14, Philip said, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus would tell Philip, have you been with me so long and do not know me? If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus shows God's willingness to stand trial, to be accused and treated unfairly, to be wrongfully condemned. Let's read verses 66 through 71 where Jesus stands before the Sanhedrin. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. Then they said, What further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. So just imagine the scene where you have the Jewish leaders who've been plotting against Jesus and he's been fully aware of that. And again, behind the scenes, 
Jesus would have been praying for these men, praying for their well-being, for their spiritual good. And Jesus is standing before them knowing that in verse 68, if he asks them a question, they're not going to answer. In verse 67, or yep, 67, if he says something about his identity, there's really no point in trying to convince them. They're just not in a position to believe. But they're in a point of just insanity. There's nothing fair, nothing just, and Jesus is willing to stand trial. He could speak on his, beha- his own behalf. He could say a word and angels would come and destroy everybody around him and save him from the situation. There are any number of things Jesus could do to alleviate the tension of the situation. But he's willfully enduring slanderous accusation and false condemnation. In chapter 23, he stands before Pilate where the Jewish leaders pressure him to condemn Jesus to death. Uh, In verse 2, they directly lie, even about something Jesus publicly said. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ a king. Do you remember what Jesus said about paying taxes to Caesar? He publicly said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So the things that they're saying about Jesus saying don't pay taxes to Caesar was a brazen lie. And Pilate asks if he's the king of the Jews. It's as you say, it's how Jesus responds. Verse 4, he finds no guilt in him. But as they pressure him, he sends them to Herod. And this is only in Luke, and I'd like to read this section in 8 through 12. This is when Jesus uh, is sent to Herod by Pilate. 23, verse 8. Now Herod was very glad when he saw Jesus, for he had wanted to see him for a long time because he had been hearing about him and was hoping to see some sign performed by him. And he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. The chief priests and the scribes were standing there accusing him vehemently. Herod with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. Now Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for for before they had been enemies with each other. So again, imagine the scene where Jesus is standing before Herod all alone. There's nobody now who has been a disciple of Jesus in the room anymore. Jesus is by himself in a room full of his vehement accusers. And who is this Herod? Do you remember something that Herod had done that would have impacted Jesus in the past? This would have been the Herod that beheaded John the Baptist. And do you see why he wanted to see Jesus? He wanted to see some trick, some miracle performed by him. And you notice in verse 9, he questioned him at some length. This is very exciting for Herod to finally get an audience with Jesus. He answered him, nothing. Imagine the tension of the situation again. As the verse 10, the priests, the scribes are accusing him vehemently. I imagine spit coming from their mouth, their fingers pointing at him, veins coming out of their neck and in their forehead, and they're just passionately accusing him. And then Herod is asking him questions and laughing. You notice in verse 11, as Jesus is silent, they treat him with contempt and mock him. And so as he's silent, the situation is escalating It's growing more tense, more terse, and then they send him back to Pilate. And I think the more we appreciate who Jesus was and the fact that he willfully endured these things, not begrudgingly, but it's that he would have even pursued them and willfully accepted them to show us realities of how much God loves us and what he's willing to do on our behalf, it it enlightens, I think, our appreciation for what he did. Going back to verse 63 through 65, chapter 22, 63 through 65. Jesus was willing to be spit on, punched, slapped, mocked. 
Verse 63 of chapter 22. Now the men were holding Jesus in custody, were mocking him and beating him. They blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Again, this can be difficult to miss, but this would have happened for an extended period of time. You know, this isn't like for a few minutes. The temple guard got a little bit of time with Jesus, but I don't imagine that the trial would have taken all that long of a time to the night. So for an extended period of time, Jesus is being punched in the face. And I imagine it's not as if the people holding him in custody are trying to punch him lightly or take it easy on him, but are trying really to get a reaction, to rouse something out of him, right? Trying to instigate anger or words where he would slander them or say something to break character. And so they're they're punching him, they're slapping him, they're spitting on him, blindfolding him, saying, prophesy, who's the one who hits you? What would Jesus be thinking about as all of this is happening? What do you think is going on in his mind? I would imagine that, again, he's, he's praying for them, hoping for their repentance, even wishing that what he's enduring might help them in their relationship with God. And so when Pilate did see Jesus, don't imagine somebody clean and washed, maybe just a little sweaty. Imagine as Pilate sees Jesus for the first time. Here's somebody whose face has already become disfigured because of being relentlessly punched again and again and again and slapped. Imagine that the residue of spit is still on his face and blood and bruising. And as Jesus speaks to Pilate, it's a man who has already been brutally treated and his appearance would reflect that. Isaiah 50 verse 8 says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Again, Jesus showing that God is willing to endure these things on our behalf if that's what it takes to help us to see how much he loves us. And then something that's not really emphasized in Luke, once Pilate receives Jesus from Herod and again appeals for his innocence, the Jewish people demand his crucifixion Mark records some things that Luke doesn't hear, that Pilate released Barabbas to them. Why don't you imagine again, Jesus now standing before this mob of people. This would be an enormous amount of people now of Jews. And as Jesus stands before them, imagine this in slow motion, that they're, they're shouting for his crucifixion. Again, I imagine veins in people's necks are just popping as they're screaming for his crucifixion like animals. And Jesus looks out to the crowd And he knows people by name. And what he sees are people that he has taught, people he's talked to, even people that he's healed, people that he's prayed for one by one. He looks out and what, in his view, would be friends, people that he's fought for, sacrificed for, people that he served, who are now relentlessly, thoughtlessly shouting for his crucifixion. Imagine Barabbas, who's experiencing these things, and you imagine the roller coaster ride of his trial for Barabbas as Pilate says he's innocent, and then, well, maybe I'm not going to be released. The people start shouting to crucify him, and Pilate is saying, why, what evil has he done? And then finally, Barabbas hears Jesus is being delivered to crucifixion, and he gets to be set free. Again, this is just something that I've thought about as an opinion thing. But how might it impact Barabbas? Hearing what happened to Jesus, hearing what happens on the day of Pentecost, hearing how people are being converted or able to change by the power of what Jesus did as he died. 
How personally might someone like Barabbas see those things? You know, there, there's an irony that Barabbas' name, Bar-Abba, literally means son of the father. So you have one son of the father unjustly condemned. You have another son of the father unjustly set free. Where do you think we stand in that? In Mark 15, uh, 17 through 20, after Jesus is scourged, which would have been a whipping from a flagrum, which would have been a whip with multiple ends, uh, either lead or metal balls would have been in it with bones of animals that would have been very sharp. Again, just imagine that Jesus in that circumstance, that what they're trying to do is break him, rouse some response out of him. And as he's silently taking it, that they would have ravished his body to an extreme hard to imagine, with the cruelty that would be hard to imagine. And after this takes place, Jesus having been beaten, his face showing signs of having been punched, slapped, spit on, the soldiers, this would have been the Romans now, the soldiers take him away into the palace, the praetorium, and they call together the whole Roman cohort. Do you know how many people that would be? A Roman cohort was about 200 soldiers. So this isn't like five, ten soldiers having their way with Jesus. This would have been about 200 men twisting together a crown of thorns, pushing it into his head to cause pain, mocking him, beating him, bowing down before him, and slapping his head with a reed. Again, treating him shamefully. People that are less than nothing to God being allowed to treat Jesus with such mockery. And that leads us, chapter 23, uh, to Jesus' crucifixion. So in chapter 23, verse 26, Jesus is led away to be crucified, and they see Simon of Cyrene to bear his cross after him. This would have been about 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. In Mark's gospel, it clarifies that it was 9 a.m. when he was first crucified, and then it was 3 p.m. when he was yielding up his spirit and drawing his last breath. Jesus would have been crucified between two criminals. So verse 33, when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. Again, it's said so briefly that he's crucified. Luke, even as a physician, does not go into detail about the pain that would have been in the driving of the nails, uh, the exhaustion of, of breathing from having to lift himself on the cross with his arms held fast and his legs, just very briefly, there they crucified him. And the emphasis of the Gospels then is actually not placed on the physical pain. None of the Gospels really go out of their way to overly emphasize how excruciating the physical aspects were. What the Gospels consistently emphasize is something that we appreciate the more we appreciate God's character, God's position, God's love, it's the shame. It's the humiliation. It's the crowds relentlessly mocking Jesus in the most grievous ways. Let's start in verse 34 again and read through verse 38. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among them. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there, were also, there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. 
So remember Peter, when Peter said, God forbid it, Lord, this will never happen to you, you know, speaking of his death. And we've talked recently in Bible classes how uh, tempting that would have been for Jesus because of the way he responded, saying, get behind me, Satan, one of the strongest rebukes in Jesus' ministry. So imagine now here at the end, Satan having, having studied Jesus' ministry. And what is it that could tempt him and hurt him in this situation more than anything else? If you are the king of Israel, this really is the Christ of God. Use your power, save yourself, come down from the cross. And isn't there an irony that as they're uh, demanding Jesus to come down from the cross and save himself, that as he seems defeated, he's gaining victory and giving opportunity for salvation for everybody else. And I think one of the most powerful things that Luke emphasizes is that he continued to lower himself in this circumstance to serve everybody else in the situation. Look a little bit before his crucifixion. So in verse 27, among the crowd following him, there were women mourning and lamenting him. Verse 28, Jesus turned to them and saying, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. And he goes on to talk about how the time will come when uh, they will say, Blessed is the womb that is barren, that never bore, the breast that never nursed, because of the judgment that is going to come upon Jerusalem for these things. So verse 31, For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Verse 34, having already read, Jesus praying forgiveness for the people who are crucifying him. And then verse 39 through 43, one of the thieves repents on the cross. And in verse 43, Jesus says, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Despite everything done against Jesus, the cruelty, the shame, the humiliation, as Jesus receives no compassion from any onlooker, he serves, he serves his accusers, his abusers, in the lowliest and most perfect way. I think what we need to see through Jesus' crucifixion is whether we grasp it or not, Jesus' death exhausted the limits of God's wisdom, his power, and his love. Isaiah 53, something that um, impacts me particularly, is the beginning part of verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him. How much would God need to love the world that to watch Jesus endure these things, to see the hands of sinful men ravishing his son to the point where he was so disfigured he was beyond the appearance of any man, that God would be pleased to crush him. And mind you, in this prophecy, it's putting the responsibility of the events on God, that it's God who did these things to his own son and was pleased to do it, even putting him to the grief that we see in the Garden of Gethsemane, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. He will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. As a result of the anguish of his soul, again, I think the emphasis of the Gospels, he will see it and be satisfied, for by his knowledge my righteous one, or the righteous one my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the greats and he will divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for the transgressors.
what should this mean to us further? Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to end the lesson just thinking about two things from 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. And these aren't going to be on the board. But the first one from 1 Peter 2 is, is referenced by Isaiah 53. 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So how should this impact us further? Number one, we need to see this personally. So notice in verse 21, Christ also suffered for you. Notice in verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body, seemingly a reference to Isaiah 53. I want to illustrate this with a couple of quick illustrations that might sound kind of silly. But when I was younger, I used to spill things a lot at restaurants. So I don't know if you've been in a situation where you've spilled like a cup of water or a drink and you're about to clean it up, but a waitress or a waiter comes over, and they're like, no, 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 I got it, I got it. You're like, no, 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 it's, I need to, it's my fault. I need to clean this up. And so you try grabbing your towel, but they shoo you away, and you just kind of have to sit back and awkwardly watch as somebody else cleans up your mess. And that's this on, obviously, an infinitely more extreme degree. Jesus' death is cleaning up a mess we made. And as awkward as it is to watch someone clean up a cup of water or soda spilt at a table and how we think, man, I just really wish they didn't have to do this. This is my fault. I can do this. We couldn't do this. We're watching Jesus clean up our mess. Another example from my youth. When I was little, I also was obnoxious. And so there were times where I would be around my friends at their house and they would get in trouble because of me. And it, their, their parents would see me doing something, and it was breaking a rule that they had, whatever, just not doing something right. And my friend would be innocent, but when the parent would see me breaking their rule, who would they yell at? It was my friend. And there was something about seeing my friend get in trouble and be punished for something I did that was actually a lot more convicting and a lot more humiliating than if they would have gotten mad at me for it. And again, on an infinitely more extreme way, Jesus here, what Isaiah 53 is saying and 1 Peter chapter 2 is saying is this happened for you. And every first day of the week, we're to be seeing this in a very intimate, very personal way that Jesus took my place by his stripes, I am healed. Last part of this point of number one, that it's personal. Notice in uh, verse... 24 at the end of the verse. When he says, by his wounds, you were healed. Most translations will say, by his wounds, you are healed. Not just that this happened in the past, but that we are currently still being healed because of the wounds that he bore on Calvary. This isn't just an event that took place many years ago and happened so that I could live in a clean conscience today. But again, by his wounds, I am healed. Number two, his suffering is a model. In verse 21, we read this, that his suffering leaves us an example to follow in. 
Think about Satan's low-hanging fruit. And what I mean by that is the things that Satan can do for us that we most easily reach out for and grab. What would that be for you? I think for a lot of us, it's our words. Notice verse 22. No deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. He uttered no threats, even when being treated unjustly. Why did this happen? If you squeeze an orange, what comes out of it? Orange juice. When we squeeze something, whatever's inside of it is what comes out of it. Jesus was squeezed to the limit. What came out of him? Love. It shows that Jesus' ministry was not a farce. He was not two-faced. He was not being hypocritical. What comes out of you when you're squeezed? When you go through tribulation, what comes out of you is what was already inside of you. The reason Jesus could endure these things is because he had learned to entrust himself to God internally in the deepest, most significant ways. So anything that came out of Jesus was always consistent with the character of God. And then lastly, with how this is an example for us, this is to change all of our relationships. Earlier than this, this is talking about servant-to-master relationships, government-to-citizen relationships, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, brotherly relationships. Jesus' suffering is meant to model every relationship we have in this life. If Jesus' suffering hasn't changed the way you treat your relationships at work, your relationships with your family, your friends, whoever it might be, your attitude toward even the government in 1 Peter 2, if Jesus' suffering hasn't changed every relationship, then you're not thinking personally enough or accurately enough about what that really was for. So that, that's the lesson for this morning. hope that this has at least broadened um, what you're able to see in the significance that Jesus' is suffering, what, what it really meant for each one of us. So may God help us to apply these things to be more deeply impacted by what God did ultimately sending his son to the world. If there's anything we can do for you this morning in your relationship with God, please bring it forward while we stand and sing our invitation song.